Okay, this is Catherine Lambrecht uh, from Chicago Food Joys Roundtable. I haven't had to say that for such a long time. I think the last program that I did for, for relative to culinary historians was back in April when it was our first Zoom meeting and it was on the potato. Now I do have in the chat box the um, links to Mike Sula's book if you're interested in purchasing it. Our program tonight was something where I saw this book. Um, it's uh, Mike Sula's, it's a composition, a compilation of all of his, or not all of his, 50 of his favorite uh, columns over the years. And it's a fundraiser for the reader to keep it in operation as well as this cookbook. But we wanna be supportive of our local press because it's sort of dwindling but we want to be supportive of our local press in whatever form it comes in. And Mike Sula has certainly been an influencer related to uh, the food culture here in Chicago for the last 25 years. And, uh, and I do recall the first time I met you, but I will insert that later when I ask a question. So Mike, I turn it over to you. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember the first time. Was it a little, maybe a little, a little three happiness? No. Okay, if you don't mind, I'll tell you. Yeah, go ahead. It was it was a dinner organized by RST, and uh -huh. we were in that we were on uh, um, oh gosh, you know, on the north side, the Vietnamese town. Um, okay. Sorry. Oh. And it had the the I think it was the place with the golden lions in front, but whatever it was, Richard had gotten them to make uh, deer or venison jerky. And some other off the menu items, which he has a talent for getting people to do. Yeah. And I remember seeing you, and you were one of those. I'm sorry, I've seen it with other people who are writers. You weren't exactly a participant, you were like an observer. <laughs> you sort of melted into the walls watching the interaction of these, I would say, ardent food enthusiasts. Because I think back then we were still Chowhound, we hadn't yet gone on to LTH Forum. But you know, the culture is what it is. Yeah. I do remember that night. I remember there were ant eggs also. Yes. I don't remember the name of the restaurant. I'm not sure if it's still there. Or and not. I think it's gone. Yeah. Yeah, it must be. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that. I don't remember what year that was, but that was that was probably in the very... I'm thinking 2003, of, 2004. Yeah. Well, it was definitely near near the beginning of LTH Forum and near the end of the... Chicago Chowhound? No, I mean, of course, not the end of Chicago Chowhound, but near the beginning of LTH Forum, I think. Right? Oh, well, it certainly deflated Chowhound for quite a while. Yep. Yep. I was lurking around because I, I had either just uh, written a story about LTH or was about to. Maybe. No, I don't think LTH was on anybody's horizon. It was it was cool weather. Okay. Because I remember wearing a jacket and, and LTH, as it was founded, was really the end of May. Yeah. Well, nobody would be wearing a jacket, likely. Well, I can definitely see that I, I was probably I was probably lurking, which is kind of what I do online anyway. Um, right, but you showed up at this event, a special invitation because RST was very excited to have you, and and but you, like I said, you were present, but you weren't participating in a sense. No, I saw that because I I've seen this with other people who do your type of job. They, they kind of melt into the walls to see how people interact and not influence how they interact. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, I try. I'm also, I'm also, you know, I was, I'm also a born introvert, so that's probably part of it too. But I, you know, as I, you know, I mentioned, I've always been, I've always been a, a lurker on on LTH more than a um, active participant, and I, I've gotten lots of story ideas from LTH, which I always try to, uh, I always try to acknowledge. Um, and I appreciate that because a lot of, I remember one time. I'm sorry to divert, but I remember one time it was, uh, I found some restaurant that was very unique, the Japanese restaurant on um, Montrose. Was it Montrose or Wilson? But in any case, everybody referred to it as Internet Buzz. That Internet Buzz was exactly one person, me, you know, and I'm suddenly Internet Buzz. And those people knew darn well who it was. It wasn't like we were strangers to each other. So I appreciate your giving attribution whenever it's possible. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's nothing happens in a vacuum. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I, I, I got into, uh, you know, I approached, I approached my writing for the reader uh, 25 years ago. Um, you know, m m much of what I've, much of what I've written has been inspired by wandering around the city looking for food. Um, looking for interesting food, interesting restaurants, inter interesting producers. That's how I went about um, approaching my job as a as a staff writer, or, or early on as a freelancer. You know, I, I um, started at the Reader. I started writing for the Reader in February uh, 1995. Um, tw 25 years to the month before oh the pandemic. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And I've written a lot of stories and, uh, you know, the, the pandemic has sort of, uh, you know, the reader's been struggling for, for quite a while, like uh, a lot of um, news organizations are. And uh, the pandemic hit it really hard. We lost 90% of our advertising. Uh, but our publisher, Tracy Bain, who is a dynamo and uh, uh, an inspiration, um, she uh, went into high gear and she figured out all these ways to raise money and raise funds. And um, part of that was, uh, part of that was the Reader Recipes cookbook, community cookbook, 80 recipes by Chicago chefs and bartenders and a few food writers, um, which, which simultaneously made me crazy in the early months of the pandemic and also uh, kept me sane because um, we had to, had to do, throw this huge project together, uh, but it also kept me really occupied and busy in my mind off of the horrors uh, outside. Um, but then another initiative she took was uh, she wanted to start a greatest hits series of uh, anthologies, um, the collected works of uh, staff writers. And the first one was by our music writer, Liar Galil, and I was next. Um, Tracy said to me, go back, look, pick 50 of your favorite stories over the last 25 years. And if I had really thought about it, I, I, I would have suggested maybe cutting it in half because you know, I, I started at the Reader in the, in the good old days when there were no deadlines and uh, there was no space restriction. And we, you know, freelancers and staff writers could write about whatever they wanted. And, I, and that's what I did. I wrote about whatever I wanted. I, wasn't, I didn't start as a food writer. Um, but uh, I, I, I did, I did um, start covering small um, mom and pop out of the way restaurants that weren't getting covered a lot elsewhere. In the, certainly not in the reader and, and not in a lot of other places, um, apart from, you know, online communities. Um, and I started using, exploring those restaurants in different neighborhoods as a way to get to know the city better, 
as a way of finding other stories. Um, so fast forward to uh, um, uh, 2020, February 2020, uh, I, I picked 50 stories, two from every year since I started writing from the reader. And it's a really thick book. And uh, so thick that it was very expensive to uh, print. So they only printed 100 copies. There's still, there's still some left. Um, but they're also selling a PDF version of the book too. And same, same thing with the community cookbook. Uh, so what I thought I would do would, would um, I thought I'd write, read a short piece from it um, and then open things up to discussion. You guys want to talk about anything. You want to talk about the book. You want to talk about the cookbook. You want to talk about the weather. That's fine too. Um, so this story is, uh, uh, I wrote it in 2008, March 27th, 2008. The story is called, uh, You Can't Eat There. And the subhead is, don't fool yourself. If you live in Chicago, you'll never get a reservation at Crib. Two miles off Oak Street Beach in the Carter H. Harrison water intake crib, the phone rings. The chef looks up from his notebook, glances at the caller ID, and turns instead to a glass bong half filled with a corked 82 Petrube. He fires it up and takes a long pull on the tube. I used to smoke a lot during service, says Albert D'Angelo. Totally irresponsible, but it helps with menu planning. Opens the doors of perception. If you've never heard of D'Angelo, he doesn't care. The 13 two tops his designers jimmied into the cramped 108 year old cylindrical, cylindrical water collection facility are booked for the opening on Tuesday, April 1, and every night thereafter for two months. The voicemail box has been full since the day the unpublished phone number for Crib went active in late February. If the call is coming from a local area code, he doesn't even bother answering. D'Angelo, the 24-year-old son of a New York Stock Exchange trader, embarked on his meteoric culinary career seven years ago after dropping out of his Upper East Side private school. His father, a habitual restaurant junkie who collects reservations the way some people collect elephant tusks, called in a favor and laid down the law. Either his wayward son took a job washing dishes at the Mario Batali flagship Babo, where dad was a regular, or he was out on the street. Three weeks later, D'Angelo turned in his dish, flag, dish rag and parlayed his brief stint at the sink into a series of stages in the restaurants of telegenic figurehead chefs like Rocco Despierto and Bobby Flay. I told people I worked the pass at Babo for three years. It was surprising how easy it was to get in, he says. He kept his eyes open, grabbed every chance he could to work prep and muscled or bribed his way onto the line. If I had to call INS on some line cook who got territorial about his station, he says, I would. But D'Angelo felt the lack of FaceTime with his bosses was inhibiting his progress, and he quit just as the itinerant underground restaurant craze was kicking off in Manhattan. I realized I could cook for people who appreciated me without taking orders from some asshole sous chef with half my chops and no hope of ever rising out of the galley, he says. In the spring of 2005, with the help of two Salvadoran line cooks poached from Flay's Bar American, he launched The Last Supper, a weekly nomadic dinner publicized with pseudonymous postings on food blogs and anonymous invitations to rising celebrities and tastemakers. One night, it was held in the back of a Lower East Side bodega, the next in a subway power station, but at, at every elaborate multi-course bacchanal, the chairs were filled with artists, musicians, writers, bloggers, and other chefs. Before long, suspiciously familiar analogs of some of his dishes began to show up on the menus of fine dining restaurants, 
all over the country, including Chicago. Edible menus, mine. Foie gras lollipops, mine. That cat who was serving sushi on a naked girl, I did that first with pasta. But the manifold pressures of staging weekly 20 plate dinner parties began to take their toll. D'Angelo started losing sleep, breaking wine glasses and ejecting customers for taking pictures. The night GQ critic Alan Richmond came in, I just looked down at my hands and decided I had to get away, he says. D'Angelo dropped out amid wild speculation. Some said his operation had been infiltrated by the health department. Others that he's being blackmailed by jealous chefs. Still others that he'd lost his teeth to meth mouth. Now D'Angelo is banking on a comeback. He acknowledges that the rumors and his unruly reputation helped fill the crib's voicemail, but he resists the implication, leveled by a number of his older colleagues, that he hasn't paid his dues. I'm no different than any other chef owner. I've worked my ass off. I've had to submit a business plan to my investors. I had to go out and grease palms to get my permits and location like anyone else. D'Angelo promises a transgressive menu, but is keeping most of his plans for opening night a secret. If I told you anything, I'd have animal rights naval blockade on my hands, he says. He did offer some hints. Ducks and geese aren't the only animals that you can force feed for big livers. I was allowed a peek at the tiny remodeled kitchen that once served the water crib's four-man crew, where the four-seat chef's table commands $1,600. Security will be tight around the, around the customers, but not for their benefit. They'll be frisked for digital cameras and D'Angelo's requiring them to sign non-disclosure agreements before they can step off the speedboat that will pick them up from staggered locations along the shoreline. I do not want to see my creations on the menu at Alinea in three weeks, he says. If that happens again, I'll unleash the lawyers. Asked when Chicagoans might get a taste of his work, D'Angelo paused and looked, took another pull on his bong. I'm not opening a great Chicago restaurant, he says. I'm opening a world-class destination. And for better or worse, diners that make those distinctions live in New York, Los Angeles, London. These people have read that Chicago is the new front line in the culinary jihad. They don't compete for reservations at Gordon Ramsay anymore. They're looking for something most people can't have. And now Chicago is the place most people can't have it. Most people. Did anyone ever eat a crib? Not if you lived in Chicago, you didn't. Um, Albert D'Angelo was uh, ahead of his time in a lot of ways. He, you know, that story was written 12 years ago and he, he, he disappeared right after that. And, uh, you know, in some ways he predates the whole, um, the whole Me Too movement and the, you know, toxic male chef character that's uh, sort of been run out on the rails as of late. I have a question. Was, was the restaurant really in a, a water crib out in the lake? Uh, the restaurant opened on um, on April first, two thousand eight, in the, in the uh, Carter Harrison Water Intake Crib. Wow, because those are so heavily secure and guarded now. I mean, I just wanted to do a story on one. They're like nobody for national security; no one can go anywhere near it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was shut down shortly after that. Shortly after April Fool's Day, two thousand eight. How long did it exist? Shut down right after April Fool's Day, two thousand eight. <sighs> So was it an April Fool's joke then? That was my April Fool's column on uh, <laughs> April Fool's Day, uh, 2008. Like, how did I not know about this place? <laughs> That's what a lot of people said. Well, you went, I mean, if you're from Chicago, you couldn't get in. He didn't want you there. 
Yeah, so I, that's, that's a rare piece of fiction in the book. Uh, I, I, that was my uh, April Fool's Day column that year, and I, I, I did manage to get, get it over on a lot of people. A lot of people um, posted outraged, a number of outraged comments about this guy. Um, and they're all, you know, we switched servers and all the, con- the comments are lost. I wish they weren't, but a lot of people, a lot of people were out for uh, Albert D'Angelo's head. Wow. I was, I was, I was thinking, I hate Mike. He got such great freaking quotes. Wow. This is like, there's like gold. You couldn't make those up. <laughs> but and I, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I wish he was real, but he wasn't. Um, everything else in the book is a hundred percent factual. I promise. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of food stories in the book, uh, but there, you know, as the, as the title indicates, I, I had, you know, in the, in a lot of the non, uh, you know, for the, for the back half of my career at the reader, I've been the, I've been the reader food writer and, you know, I've written restaurant reviews and profiles of chefs and, and producers and things like that, food related things. You know, the reader let me raise a, um, a, a rare heritage mule foot hog for a year and a half. The reader let me go to every single Harold's chicken shack in the city and evaluate it. Um, uh, the reader let me do a lot of fun food related things, but um, I started out just, just as like a, a freelancer or not a free, well, yeah, a freelancer, but then a staff writer at large uh, writing about anything. But um, I noticed as I, was, as I was looking back over the years that a lot of these stories seem to involve um, animals and humans in, in very strange relationships. Um, and not, not just like um, predator prey relationships, just, you know, there was um, this colony of, of raccoons in Rose Hill Cemetery that, that people were feeding um, hot dogs and peanut butter sandwiches to. Um, they came to a very untimely end. You know, there was, uh, there was a woman in Ravenswood Manor who, who kidnapped her neighbor's cat and, and let it loose because she didn't, she thought it was a menace. Um, you know, I wrote. I spent a summer with. I spent a summer with fossil collectors in Braidwood, Illinois, who are just. Um, their passion is just collecting these three hundred million year old fossils of extinct invertebrates, including the you know the Illinois State fossil, the, the Tully monster, which is, you know, if you've never seen one, it's just one of the weirdest things imaginable. So that's where the title of the book comes from: an invasion of gastronomic proportions. It, it was. It comes from a story I wrote. Um, when the you know the morning after a torrential summer downpour, um, I, I I was going through the park along the river, and there were thousands of like these bright red crayfish crawling out of the river, and there are all these people plucking them out of the water to take them home and like make their make crawfish boils with them. And it turned out um, that they were Louisiana crayfish, the ones you buy by the pound in New Orleans, and uh, and. Um, they're an invasive species in the Chicago River now. So they're an invasive species also up in a lot of Wisconsin lakes because they were yeah. used as as bait, cheap yeah, bait, right. and then they took off. Yeah. This is Linda. I, I, you know, I have to tell you, I've been reading your food, your restaurant review column for years, and yeah, you know, every, you know, and. 
I've been to a number of them, and they're all just right on. I just trust your uh, recommendation because <laughs> – so how did you get into food? I mean, what what is your background when you were younger, I guess? How is it that you got into this food critic uh, career? Did, did you have a – do you enjoy food when you were younger? Did you, are you a cook? Yeah. Thank, first of all, thanks for saying that. Um, and I, I mean, it, it all starts with, um, you know, a love of eating. Um, you know, in some ways I, I grew up, you know, my mom was a, my mom was a, a, a typical, you know, housewife of her general generation and she cooked with, you know, canned vegetables. And, and, um, I mean, I wouldn't looking back, I wouldn't say she was like a, a very great, well-rounded cook, but she was pretty good at, at some things. And so was my grandmother and I, you know, I love to eat and I, I love to start, I, you know, I started cooking when I was a kid, you know, just simple stuff. Jello, I think was probably one of the first things. Um, I just love to cook and eat my whole life. I don't have any um, formal culinary training uh, other than just like eating everything. Um, but you're, do you have a... But Go ahead, then, you know, eventually, eventually, as I started at my writing career, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I, I I saw food as a way to get into um, the neighborhoods and 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 meet mm. people. Um, you know, every okay. particularly, you know, I was particularly I I, I would write about um, restaurants opened by like first generation immigrants or their children, and every every immigrant has a story and that's just kind of the way I looked at it. Like there was this, you know, I was, I, I read your article about De Candela. Yeah. It's a, you know, a kid, he's a computer programmer. His dad immigrated from Peru. This was all in your story. And he, the kid started a business, but then needed, you know, his father's recipe. And I mean, that just, that story just, uh, you know, was totally hooked, got me hooked. I, I mean, <laughs> I you, actually, I, my face, I go back, I've been back there a number of times. Good, good. It, I think it's moved. I think it's yeah. still um, there, but it's moved. Yeah, not far away. It just moved around the corner on, on Irving Park in a bigger space. I actually live in the, that neighborhood. It remains one of my favorite restaurants in the city. We probably order from there um, twice a month. Um, it's just the best, the best. Pollo a la brasa in the city, as far as I'm concerned. But like a, well, great, yeah. a very deep and great Peruvian menu of all kinds of things that are just terrific. And, you know, in Peru, what they do is they bury the chicken. In, in, you know, they build a fire in the ground, put the chicken up on the fire, and I think bury it. But I don't think they're doing that at the restaurant. But somehow, mm-hmm. you know, it's they just are, delicious. They are cooking it over over uh, charcoal, though, or at least the, the old place they were. And I'm certain they still are at the new place because it's, I mean, that's what it tastes like. That's one of my favorite places. Thanks for bringing that up. Hi, Mike. I'm Veronica Hinky, and I I just love your stories like everyone else does. It's really neat to meet you here virtually tonight. Um, I'm really curious about how you chose all the stories for the book. I know it would be hard to narrow it down, but especially would love to know more about how did you pick the story about crib for tonight? It was short, and it it's it it uh it always get it always gets a rise out of people, and it, it is not, it is like one of the ones that people seem to remember a lot. Um, you know, it, it like not long after that was published, it was like it was outed. I was you know people people kind of some people 
people figured it out and and it it, it like the it bamboozled a lot of people but it didn't last long <laughs> unfortunately uh but i don't know i just remembered it, it was you know it was that was just a really fun week um <laughs> the reaction to that story so i just thought well let's see if it let's see if it still works let's see if it still has legs <laughs> sorry i did not mean to deceive you i mean i did but i'm glad we're i'm glad we're all square now what are a couple of other stories that really stand out to you from over the years that you love? Um, well, I mean, like in, in, in some of the later chapters are, I, I did included some of my um, more straightforward uh, restaurant profiles and reviews. And, uh, you know, I, one of the last things I wrote before the pandemic was about um, uh, this woman named Julia Gam, who, one runs a, a restaurant in um, Bronzeville called uh, Powerhouse. Actually, I don't know if it's still open. I've, I've tried to get in touch with her and I haven't heard from her, but um, it's a Cameroonian restaurant. And, and just this woman, um, this woman's story about how she, she came to Chicago. She started selling um, Cameroonian food to, uh, you know, cab drivers downtown illegally out of the back of a borrowed car. And, um, just her story about how she, how she like, you know, from that she built this thing. She went, she went into a food, uh, went to a food truck. She opened a brick and mortar. Um, she had all these. Uh, she produced a, a movie in in Cameroon. She produced music videos with Cameroonian pop stars, and um, she's just a really inspiring story. Um, and uh, like a wonderful restaurant, and like a wonderful, like sweet, inspiring lady, and. You know, right right before the pandemic, we were like the, the reader was gonna uh, do um, a our first one a, a food festival, and uh, we invited her. She was all on board, and then you know the pandemic hit, and she 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 went underground. I don't, I haven't heard from her. I've reached out to her. I'm worried about her. I hope she's okay. Um, you know, stories like that. I mean, there there are a few in the later chapters. Like, uh, you know, I, I wrote about a place in Rogers Park called El Sabor Poblano, um, about a family from originally from Puebla in Mexico, and they're doing super regionally specific um, Puebloan dishes in this this little restaurant uh, in Rogers Park. Um, Morena's Kitchen, Dominican restaurant um, in I think it's is it Belmont Cragen. Um, uh, just like little places like that have always like, you know, have always just really inspired me. And like, you know, they're the places I go back to a lot when I can. I don't get, you know, one of the, one of the unfortunate things, boo-hoo about this job is I don't, I don't have the time or the digestive real estate to go back to the places I really love as much as I want to. Um, so I guess I just sort of think about that sort of thing. You've done so much for the for the communities and for the businesses over the years. And I just want to say thank you for all you've done. Thanks. Thank you. So you got an award from the James Beard for something called Chicken of the Trees. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's another that's another strange story about animals that are humans and their um their strange relationships to, to animals. I was uh, you know, so I'm a I'm a gardener. I'm I'm not a um I'm not a particularly skilled gardener, but I, you know, I started by growing tomatoes on the roof of my apartment many years ago. And every summer, if and if any of you garden, you know this. 
um, the squirrels maraud your tomatoes and, and they do it in the most, most disrespectful way. They'll, they'll grab just as something is about to ripen, they'll like take a bite out of it and leave it and move on to another one. And I did not, you know, I didn't know what to do. It, it was so infuriating. I, you know, every morning I'd check on my tomatoes and this would happen. It happened for years. I get, then one year I got a, um, I got a no kill squirrel trap and um, I started trapping them and then driving them out into the forest preserve, which I later learned when I started talking to squirrel experts is like, you know, one of the worst things you can do because you're, you're depositing that squirrel in other squirrels territory. And then there, now there's more competition for food. Um, I also learned that squirrels can find their way back <laughs> to where they like to hang out. Uh, but anyway, I, I started thinking about this more and more, and I, I consulted I consulted a you know a, um, an urban gray squirrel expert who kind of I felt gave me the moral authority to start eating um, to start eating them. So I I figured out a way to uh, trap and as humanely as possible dispatch the squirrels. I had a um, a pretty famous Chicago chef who I'm still not sure is okay with me mentioning his name. Um, show me how to, uh, how to um, skin and uh, clean um, a squirrel by nailing it um, by its tail to uh, the post on the back patio of his restaurant during lunch service. And he showed, no one else was around the patio, but he, he showed me how to do it. Um, and then that's, that's, I started doing it. And, um, once I collected enough squirrels and stored them in the freezer, I, I had a big party and I invited a bunch of people over and I made burgoo and, uh, you know, which is a, you know, a, a pretty thick Midwestern Southern, um, kind of country stew that typically included squirrels. Um, we also ate squirrel brains. Um, you know, it was a lot of fun. I had a, um, a chef friend, uh, I gave him the livers and the hearts of the squirrels and he made a beautiful terrine. Um, yeah, that, so that's the way the story ended. And I, you sort of the moral of the story is that if, if things get so bad ever, um, there's always squirrels. They're perfectly edible. Did the squirrel taste like chicken? Turkey, I would say. Dark meat turkey. It was a, a fun story to write. I mean, that was another story, you, you know, written in the golden days of the reader where there, there were no deadlines, there were no space restrictions and the paper, paper gave me the freedom to um, spend, an, an, you know, four, five months working on that story. It took, uh, it took a while, quite a while for it to get published because there were some uh, legal ramifications. Um, I didn't follow uh, the letter of the law in dispatching and catching and dispatching my squirrels. There are certain laws against uh, trapping and, and eating squirrels in the city. Um, I think the statute of limitations has run out on that and that, that those were some details I had to omit from the story, but um, the story really resonated with people and I don't think they were just gardeners. What were the, what were the, the particular provisions in the law that you inadvertently violated? I don't know for sure if the law still stands, but I can't imagine why it would have changed, but there's a squirrel season. And the only way that you can um, hunt squirrels is by shooting them in Illinois. You can't trap them. Um, 
and you can't do it in the city either. So I violated some of those laws. The nice thing is though, uh, the mayor at the time didn't seem bothered by it. And he, he sent me a, a letter congratulating me when the, when the story, the story won a, a James Beard award. Um, and the mayor, mayor sent me a letter congratulating me. So I, once that happened, I, that, I figured that was my, my get out of jail free card. Is that daily or wrong? What's that? Was that daily or Emmanuel? It was wrong. Yeah. Wow. Rom, yeah, and it was the funny thing too is that it was like it was riddled with typos too. The letter, I'm not complaining, but it was it was a curiously written letter. I wish Maybe I, I wish I pulled it out. I I'm sorry, what? Maybe written by a squirrel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by the way, Gary Fine has his hand up. He wants to ask a question. Hi, Gary. Hi, Mike. Um, I'm I'm glad I'm back on. I had a problem with the internet. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Stoneflower. Uh, you know, it's uh, you might want to explain this, the backstory of it, but I'm curious that, as far as I know, um, and before the pandemic, uh, none of the restaurant critics in Chicago had written reviews right. of the restaurant, and and obviously deliberately so. And you know how you feel about your responsibility as a critic to attend, you know, a restaurant, which is, is clearly one of the better restaurants in Chicago. Uh, one of the mo more talented chefs, although, you know, a problematic figure, of course, well, I'll let you answer as you wish. Well, I, well, there's a couple things first. And this is, this is, I'm not, I'm not offering this as an excuse, but it's definitely one of the reasons why is that, is that I don't really I don't have the dining budget that I used to have. In fact, I don't I don't have one anymore. And even before the pandemic, um, the reader like cut back my my dining budget, and um, I kind of had to do a pivot. I stopped I kind of stopped doing traditional, you know, restaurant reviews. I I had a I you know I used to go in two three times before I wrote about a place. I would wait a month before it opened, and uh, I just. I don't have the money for that anymore. I just can't do it. Um, and, and so that dropped Stoneflower down on my priorities quite a bit. I had to pivot the way I do things. I went back to what I used to do, which was do more reporting, um, you know, tell people stories more than just, you know, evaluate whether this restaurant's a good value or not for your, you know, the average. If I offered for you to be my guest, you know, would you review Stoneflower? Nope. I wouldn't because I also, I also, I also made a commitment and I broke this once, but I also made a commitment not to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna cover chefs that are, that have huge problems like that guy does. And I don't, I don't know, Gary, if you want, if you want to give the background on all of this about, about him, if you want, or I, I will, I mean, I, I don't need the background, but I'm just wondering if other people, might need the background. I, you know, the other, the other thing about it is I, I feel, so the chef um, used to operate a restaurant with his wife at the time uh, called 42 Grams, which I reviewed and I loved and I thought it was, I thought it was great. And uh, it won a, won a Michelin star or was it two? One or two, one or two stars? Two stars. Won two stars. Um, and, but the chef, Jake Bicklehop, 
had had some problems that were you know were not out in the open. Um, but it, it, the restaurant came to a crashing halt, uh, at, you know, after an incident one night at the end of service where he, he assaulted his wife at the time. And, um, he's, he's tried to mount a comeback with uh, stone flower. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not interested. I, I feel like there are other places to write, there are other stories to tell. Um, there are other restaurants to, to write about. And I, but there, Sorry, are, there are a lot of great artists, Picasso being one, who are really problematic people. And, you know, so I, I'm not challenging you. I, I know that a lot of critics, uh, you know, feel as you do. Is a, uh, But I'm, I'm just curious, you know, given, given that culture producers can be bad actors, and he certainly was, uh, you know, what, what's your responsibility as a critic? I just feel like there are other stories to tell. He's not the only one. I also, you know, I also feel, um, I also felt like a little, a little, I felt a little manipulated. I, I felt a little uh, duped by that whole situation because I'm sure you've seen the documentary that was made about him. Um, that was presented at the, at the Siskel Center. Um, and I knew that there was, I knew like the, the whole story hadn't come out when that happened. Um, but we knew the restaurant closed. We knew that there was, you know, the police were involved and um, she got a restraining order against him, I think. And I was invited by the filmmaker to appear on a panel with, with her. And I asked the filmmaker and I, I said, did you, so, you know, there's this whole story. Is there, is that something we should talk about in the panel? And he relayed to me that she, she did not, she did not want to bring it up. And, um, so I respected that, but then, you know, I participated in this panel and, uh, you know, the story came out later and I just, I just felt like I, I went into this thing without, without enough information. And I, I, I felt, I don't want to say I felt deceived, but I, I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't appreciate that. Um, being invited into this public examination of this, this film without knowing all the facts. And, um, you know, G G Chef Bicklehop tags me in his Instagram posts all the time, um, as he does, I'm sure, with every other food writer. And uh, I'm well aware of him, um, but I'm not, I'm just not interested. I mean, there other people are free to, but I'm not going to. Um, and I can't afford to anyway. I mean, I guess I didn't address your question. I mean... He, there's the there's this great artist operating and he's being uh he's being ignored by the the media because of because of his uh you know his past transgressions if memory serves he doesn't seem like he's very regretful you know he he doesn't i can't point to you spe specifics but my feeling is, is that he's not he's you know he tried to sue her he tried to sue his wife for 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 libel i think um that doesn't seem like someone who's. That doesn't seem like someone who's examined their behavior and um, even attempted to, to make amends or, or, or grow from the situation. So Fat Rice recently closed because it because of a similar situation. Right, I wrote about that it, as well. Yeah, I guess that's more newsy news. It's not really the domain of a food critic. I write about news. I mean, I'm, I don't, I, 
I don't really consider myself a, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I, re, I do other things just besides food and criticism. I'll, I'll write about news. I'll, I'll profile people. Um, and I did, write, I did write about Abe because I had a, I had a very direct personal experience with, with Abe's, um, Abe's inexcusable behavior too. And I wrote about that. You know, I, I had a really ugly, awful incident with, with Abe um, last summer. And I, I said, that was it. We're done. I'm never going to write about him again. Uh, and then I, I you know, I, I did it. I did it anyway. Because I felt like people should know. People should, people, I felt like people that were calling him out were being attacked um, and not given credibility. And I wanted to lend my voice to that credibility to say, Hey, this is, this is what I witnessed. So. I see. I did. I did write about, I did write about one of, uh, one of these unfortunate chefs. I have a question. If you don't mind me changing the subject. Sure. Chefs are becoming celebrities these days, you know, so I think it is wise to call him out, I guess. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's all right. It's tricky when you got Hollywood squares up here, you know. Um, oh, oh, I'm a little afraid of the answer, Mike. I'm wondering why you're not wearing your mask. Why are we getting to see your face? Um, along, along with a lot of other things, things have just changed. And I feel like the anonymity ship has sailed. I'm not doing traditional restaurant criticism anymore. And... Um, I'm not, I'm not worried about it really. I don't, uh, I don't try to sneak in. I don't, I don't announce myself when I'm coming somewhere, but I'm also not going anywhere either. I'm, 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 uh, I'm ordering takeout. I'm writing about people that are doing uh, pop-ups and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing about indoor dining. I'm not, uh, I'm not critiquing that experience anymore because I don't think it's a safe thing to do. I am writing about the ways that I'm right now I've pivoted to the, writing about um, the ways restaurant workers are adapting to the pandemic. Um, that's what's interesting to me right now. Like what, what are the creative things people are doing um, to get by, to keep working, to keep their employees working, to keep feeding people. Um, and that's kind of what I spent the spring and summer doing largely is writing about just these super creative like delivery pop-ups. Um, a lot of young chefs, a lot of new people to the industry um, and I think, you know, my, my suspicion is, is that people are going to have to get really creative this winter. Um, because I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think indoor dining is gonna, um, is gonna be a go this winter. I'm afraid. That's my feeling. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I, I, sir, I certainly don't want to do it. I don't want to, um, I don't even want to eat on a patio. Like my, you know, early on what my one experience eating on a, a patio, which I, I did review that place. It was the new uh, Gino Bahena uh, restaurant was so nerve wracking um, that I just, I just don't want to do it. It's, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, it's not fun. And I don't, and the other thing is I don't want to, um, I don't want to critique restaurants, social safety or uh, social distancing protocols. Like, you know, I, I had this experience where the server kept coming up to my table with his mask under under his nose, <laughs> which does nothing. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to be in a I don't want to be in a position where I feel obligated to report that kind of thing. You know, 
Um, that just doesn't seem fun. And people can figure that out for themselves if they, if they choose to, to do that, if they choose to, you know, eat at restaurants right now. But I don't think, I don't think it's safe. And I want to, um, I want to concentrate on the, on the other ways that, that restaurants are, um, you know, the ways that hospitality workers are figuring out how to survive and make it through this until indoor dining is safe. Okay. Sounds like you, you think your ship has sailed though. I mean, cause you can't go back and be, be anonymous again. Yeah. I don't think my ship has sailed. I think no, I the, the, your, your face as anonymous, anonymous is yeah. also, I've got this great mat on, on my face. I love it. I think it's what? great. I can just take that off. You'll never know. You'll never know. <laughs> got it. I actually do. I do actually do have plans to attend a, um, uh, an outdoor pop-up that's, that is going to be announced very shortly. That's someone I'm, I'm, I've been writing about. Um, but her um, social distancing protocols are, are, are very reassuring. And I really am a big fan of the chef and I'm going to, I can't wait to, I can't wait to check it out. So you're sort of like uh, Mike Sula 2.0 or Mike Sula 3.0? Yeah, three. Yeah. Three sounds good. Oh, you're talking so much. Because, yes, I am. I'm sorry, I, my mother's nearby. Yeah, because it's, it's, because even for writers, keeping yourself employed is an issue, which is why, of course, this book, this cookbook came up because you're trying to keep an operation going yeah. when it's tough. I've been, I've been very lucky in, in that I have, um, I actually, I, you know, I have two jobs. I, the reader is, the reader has not laid anyone off in this pandemic, pandemic, despite losing 90% of its advertising. Um, and things look, things look, I'm not going to say things look okay, but like things are, things are going to be stable for, for a while, I think. And I have another, I have a side hustle. I, I edit a magazine about culinary cannabis called Kitchen Toke. About, it's all about cooking with cannabis. Um, and that, that's like a whole other job that keeps me really busy. So I, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I, ha that I have this, that I have work. I have work as a, I'm, I'm a journalist and I'm still employed. It feels, it feels like a miracle. <laughs> Most definitely. Because there's so many people, I mean, you know, well, you know, Tribune food section is not quite what it once was. It's still going, but it's not what it once was. It's still pretty good, but yeah, well, I mean, not nothing is nothing is what it once was. Right, because uh, I, I go ahead. No, that's all well, right. in, in Highland Park, we had a local newspaper. The Tribune, the Tribune I want to say, is is facing its own challenges, which with, with you know, it's now, you know, it's a, it's it feels like it's about to be gutted by Alden Capital. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have like an, it, it, I don't have any inside baseball on what's going on at the Tribune, but um, yeah, it doesn't, everything's terrible. <laughs> but that's true. I mean, we had a very local paper for Highland Park, the landmark. It folded immediately when people closed and they lost all of their advertising or almost all their advertising, they went poof. Yeah. So you're, you're still alive. You're still viable. Yeah. I feel pretty good about the, the, 
the um, the near future of of the reader. I think we're I think we're surviving, and I I you know I, and I I I, I got to give credit to my boss. I mean Tracy Bain. You know the reader the readers yeah it's I don't know it's been ten years since I felt good about the, about the future of the reader just because it's been you know mismanaged by a by a series of of owners and um tracy who's the former the publisher of the the former windy city times just she just came in and 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 kicked kicked ass you know she's she's just whipped it back into shape morale is better than it's ever been she restaffed it it's a much more diverse audience it's going to all over the city you know the people used to think of the reader as like a you know it only went to it only went to white neighborhoods now it goes all over the city um so she's made a lot of improvements and and you know, morale of the papers, I, th I think, is, is pretty good. Isn't this the time, Mike, to ask people to donate to the reader? Please buy the book. Please buy the book. Read paper. We read it and love it, and we have to pay for it. Become a member. You can become a member. The reader is now a not-for-profit organization. You can become a member by donating. There's all sorts of swag to buy to support uh, right. independent journalism. Um. Kathy, are there are there link are there links? Oh yes, at the top of the chat are the links to how you can acquire your books. The books, and at the same page is like the, are the links to all the different projects that the reader has going to, to keep the lights on. There's a bunch of stuff. There's a jigsaw puzzle of the bean. There's a coloring book. There's sweatshirts. There's face masks. Everybody needs a reader face mask. So. I, I see. I see that Eric, you're. Uh, Unmuted. Did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, I was just curious for Mike's thoughts on um, local sustainable or seasonal or farm to table. Um, to total change of topic here, but just curious for your thoughts on that. I'm personally very interested, um, but curious for your thoughts on, you know, farm to table, seasonal, and particularly sustainable um, restaurants that support that kind of stuff. I'm all, I'm all for it. Um, I'm all for it. I've I've written a lot on on that on that broad, huge, wide-ranging subject. Um, it's particularly interesting right now that um, um, you know I, th I think probably the Tribune has reported on this. I I haven't, but um, uh, the struggles farmers are facing right now that they have no restaurants to uh, to sell to. I have a column coming out next week about a small farmer. Um, run uh um i'll tell you about her next week but she she's uh she had to pivot her, her as well she's she's working on a um an eighth of an acre on the former robert taylor homes on the south side in an incubator plot operated by um uh the chicago, chicago botanic gardens and uh she had her first season out she was going to sell um a lot of rare uh rare produce to, to restaurants and she had to in March she had to totally revise her, her crop uh, program um, and pivot to a CSA because there, there weren't going to be any restaurants to buy from her anymore. She, she still managed to sell to some restaurants but um, yeah that's really interesting right now too like all the, you know these farms the, the way this pandemic has reverberated you know it's not just the hospitality industry it's the dozens and dozens of ancillary industries that 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 interact with it 
and 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 farmers are farmers are struggling just as just as much as restaurants are and they're having to figure out what to do about it well i'm on the board of green city market so one thing everyone can do is come to the market and support the local sustainable farmers that show up every saturday and you know get them in order and all that kind of stuff so thank you yeah you bet good for you i haven't i haven't i haven't been to the green city market this year I'm sorry. I should correct that. I I go to my regular is the uh, um, the Lincoln Square Farmers Market. That's a good market, but come to Green City. <laughs> I think you'd be. I would have. On, on any other on any other year, I'd have been I'd have been there many times. But I'll I promise I'll make up for that. Awesome. So, um, what farming did you do on your roof this year? By the way, I, I I'm lucky enough to have a backyard now. Um, so I have, uh, I have two raised beds in the backyard and I have a long, uh, raised bed along the fence. I have some stuff on the front porch. Um, it was a pretty good year. Wasn't my tomatoes weren't as tomatoes and uh, chilies weren't as productive as last year, but it still, was, it was really good. I, the cool, the coolest thing I grew this year was an Okinawan, uh, bitter melon. It's a white, a white bitter melon. That I really didn't have any hope for because it's you know I read about it and said it it really needed extremely hot temperatures. It was really productive. I got like a half a dozen of these big, fat, gorgeous like alabaster knobby bitter melons. Um, they they were beautiful. Um, but things are you know things are things are winding down. I still have a few tomatoes and some chilies and um, I I planted my winter my winter crops. Some brassicas, some radishes. Still a couple more months to go. Um, but the squirrels, th that's the other thing too, is that, that uh, when we moved here uh, six years ago, and I, I, started, I started gardening here, like the squirrels didn't bother me. I don't, know if they, I don't know if they didn't discover it or not, but this year I, during the pandemic, I treated myself to a bird feeder and um, the squirrels came back. And... I, I mean, I feel like I've made peace with squirrels. I'm okay with them now. Um, I'm not going to say we're friends, but um, this pair of squirrels is, it's so this bird feeder hanging from the uh, corner of the garage. And these squirrels are amazing because they, they come across the power lines, across the roof of the garage, and they, they dangle off the edge of the roof onto the bird feeder, head down, just like eating off, eating off, the, uh, off the tray around the bird feeder. And they're also eating my tomatoes, but I, but I have a I have a lot I'm, I can I can share my tomatoes with the squirrels. I, don't I was going to say, Mike, um, I have a personal hatred of squirrels, but I really enjoyed this video. I think it's maybe it's new. I don't know. I just saw it. The YouTube video with an, an older the young man who was a NASA engineer, and he yeah. does the the thing in the backyard. I knew squirrels were smart, but I did like them a tiny bit better after I saw that three times. That is an amazing video. Because he's amazing, not more than the squirrels. Yeah. Well, if you could, I mean, I, I don't have that on hand, but if you, you, could, you should post that in the chat because that, that is incredible. I, I think if you go, go to YouTube and just Google squirrel relay backyard NASA, you'll get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a delight. Yeah, I, I, I spoke at a, uh, I think Cynthia Clampett here, it was something she organized, but it was a men's and uh, 
convention of sorts, and they had one session just on squirrels, and they were the menzins of the animal world. And they showed them working through these labyrinths. And some of them were quite complicated, but, you know, persistence. And after a month, they went through the whole process. And just their, their anat that as, as the YouTube video Joan's talking about um, sort of gets, there's a lot of like slow motion and replays and things. And it, he really gets into the, um, the anatomy and, and the, these amazing, um, almost like seem like physically impossible um, uh, contortions that these squirrels are capable of to, to get to get to what they want. It's, it's incredible. I think the very, the very thing you mentioned, Mike, where he's hang, the squirrels are hanging vertically. I think he measured their, I don't know, their body weight versus gravity or something to tell us, you know, more detail of what's happening to their bodies when he did that. This guy's really nuts in a good way. He's just yeah. an unemployed NASA guy and he's just built this brilliant relay race for squirrels in his backyard. Yeah. Highly recommended. Mike, how did you cook your bitter melon? Uh, I made um, uh, Lila Bunyarda Bun's um, uh, bitter melon, Thai bitter melon soup. Stuffed with, uh, I sectioned them, stuffed them with uh, ground pork and just simmered them in a light chicken broth with a little bit of white pepper. So, you know, the, the other thing about them is that they, 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 they turn really fast. They turn when they start to um, go bad, they turn like bright orange and, and collapse in on themselves. Uh, so I lost, I lost a few that way. Um, yeah. They'll often... so my first, I'm sorry. My, my first one, I also, um, I made an, an, a Pakistani recipe. I made a, I made a kima with them where I, I kind of, um, I shallow fried them in oil till till they got crispy, and then uh, I I think I I think I sort of sautéed them with ground beef and a bunch of spices. That was really good. I love when they want to like scream at you, "Hey, you gotta pick me!" And then they open up and they have the bright red seeds. And I I made a smoothie with some papaya and bitter melon tonight. Did with what one once they turned? Are they okay when they turned? Or is that a myth? Are they, are they, I think I mean, they're fine when they turn, Colleen. And I eat the seeds too. Apparently, Peter yeah. love all that sweet flesh around the red seeds. Oh, I missed out. Which is why I love it. Yeah, and uh, they make great omelets. I, I have a I have a Facebook page, Crazy for Bitter Melon, and uh, Monica and and Mike have contributed to it. And there's some good recipes for bitter melon on there. And bitter melon omelet is terrific. Was that Kima recipe? Is that where I got that Kima recipe I just talked about? So, so. No, no, I, it's not for me, no. Yeah. Um, mm. the, the woman I mentioned earlier that I'm writing about next week, this season, she grew uh, five varieties of bitter melon in her little, her little, her little plot. Oh, hook her up with my, my Facebook page. <laughs> yeah, I'm, actually, I meant to. I meant to. I meant to tell her about it. I will. Thank you. So are there any other questions, thoughts? I, I was going to suggest um, to those of you who don't like squirrels, Droll Yankees makes a spinning bird feeder. The weight of the squirrel actually makes it spin and they go flying. And if you really want to have fun, you take the battery out for a few days and then put it back in once they are accustomed to going back to it. I love it. 
confuse a squirrel today. Yeah. <laughs> Have you thought about going doing video a video a review of a restaurant? You know what? What, what I, another thing we did at the beginning of the of the pandemic was um, so the the reader had this thing called key ingredient. Um, that started about 10 years ago, which was, it, it, was, it was actually done, it was um, reported on by Julia Teal and Michael Gebert did the video. And it was, a, it was kind of a chef challenge where um, it started out where I, I challenged Grant Ackett to make something out of this, this Indonesian uh, kind of a nut called kuak kupas, which I had never heard of and he had never heard of. And so, his so he did he made this um like warm chocolatey cocktail with it and uh he it, and then julia wrote the story they published the recipe um Gebert shot a you know a beautiful video um and then Ackett's was able to challenge the next chef and then that chef challenged the next chef with a, a weird ingredient and they re they retired it that uh, that won a james beard award um, it was retired a couple years ago and it had sort of run its course. And then I, I tried to, um, I tried to relaunch it at the beginning of the, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic with what we call key ingredient pandemic pantry. And it, it was meant to be, cause it, all these chefs now were like doing home cooking content in their home kitchen. So I just thought, let's get these guys to cha challenge each other to cook out of their pantries. And the first two, the first two were pretty good. Um, it was uh, Eric Williams kicked it off uh, with um, I can't remember now what he what he did, but he passed it on to Brian Jupiter, and then Brian Jupiter passed it on to another chef, and it all fell apart from there because it was really hard to get these chefs to like to actually shoot shoot the videos. It was really just for a number of reasons. Chefs are are good at a lot of things. Um, but putting together short Instagrammable home videos weren't, weren't one of them. So the, so the whole thing fell apart. Um, but uh, yeah, so we did a little bit of video at the beginning, at the beginning of the pandemic. Maybe it'll come back, maybe, maybe this winter, who knows. Well, Mike, this was terrific. I'm really glad you, you were willing to spend time with us and, and tell your story. Thank you for having me. It's been an it's been an honor. It's always it's been a dream of mine. I mean, you asked me you asked me a long time ago to um, to come and talk, and I don't I don't remember why it never happened. But but thanks. Thank that you happens sometimes. That happens. It's, and it's just because maybe we weren't ready. But I now think, no, I, I think did the right thing. I think it was my fault. I think I wasn't ready. I feel like I I uh, I don't know. I think I hedged for some reason. I'm not sure why. But I apologize. I'm, 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 I'm so glad you guys had me. I'm Nothing to apologize for. At the same time, we wanted to be supportive of your project. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. Uh, yep. Now, Thanks. I just, if you don't mind indulging for a quick second, um, our next program is going to be, there's going to be two programs on two nights in a row. October 21st will be Culinary Historians. It's going to be Andy Smith talking about food waste. Then the next evening, the very next evening, there was some confusion, and this is just the way it worked out. We're going to have Dennis Foley talking about 
50 hot dogs eaten in 50 days. It's going to be a guide. He did years ago, and I'm sorry, this is going to look all reverse off, but he did the Streets and Sandman's Guide to uh, Chicago Eats some years ago. When I tried to get him to come as a speaker, he had just graduated. He was an electrician for Streets and Sands, and he became an attorney. And so he no longer was available. So when I saw he was available and doing hot dogs, I reaped because I don't know if he'll suddenly, excuse, I have my mother here, uh, if he'll close the door on me one more time. It's okay. Now, on Saturday, November 28th, we're going to have Ann Willen. That will be a program with Scott. Um, she's going to be doing phone. Uh, she's going to be zooming in from London. So that's why it's 1030 on a Saturday morning. So we don't have to keep somebody up in the middle of the night to, as convenience, conveniencing us. Um, and I've been going to other culinary historian events for the last a uh, few months, and one of them is a, is a talk I picked up is on Trader Joe's. Um, it's a Californian, and she's going to talk about how Trader Joe's has influenced the way Americans eat. And in February, um, I work with the Highland Park Historical Society. Well, work means volunteer, nobody, you know. And uh, but the archivist there highlighted an article of uh, an archivist from the University of Illinois is going to do a talk on the Jewish origins of Viennese cuisine. Um, she was looking to make Viennese food kosher and discovered it was kosher anyway. And she's been doing research. And in fact, over Christmas, she's going to go back to Vienna to continue doing research. Now, I want to give you, I've been playing with how to make these things a little more interactive. So I have a poll here because I need to figure out what to do for November. Um, I saw a folklorist do a talk on Swedish pancakes for breakfast because apparently in Sweden, it's not a breakfast item. It's a dessert item, but because it came here to our shores and we associate pancakes with breakfast, he, he did a thing on that. Now the relatively new farmer is a guy who's been farming at least 10, 12 years. Um, his grandfather owned the farm next to old, where Old Orchard Shopping Center is today. But his father chose not to become a farmer. And because of that, he, um, he wasn't a farmer, he became a plumber, but then he used his money and bought a farm and now is a commercial farmer. Um, there's the Mickleberry Fire. This is a sausage company from 1968. I can see that's yeah, got like zero right. interest. Um, there's also the Stockyards Fire twice, 1910 and 1934. Um, I have a friend who does these documentaries related to a fireman's perspective. But Mickleberry Fire, that was something that happened here. The, the Stockyards Fire, that's a huge economic engine, and it affects it affected our region. And then this is something that Deb Silberstein and I have been kicking around. And frankly, I was the one that choked on doing kind of like a cookbook club. And we would not use, we would use cookbooks that we could find on Hoopla, which is an online sharing library, rather than relying on books coming, you know, and some of them were going to go with older books, the ones you might likely have on your shelf. So if you could just give me a little feedback that will help me figure out what to prioritize. Kathy, so, Mike, Kathy, Kathy uh, Chicago Library doesn't use Hoopla, so that you eliminate a lot of people that way. 
Well, then we'll have to figure out some. Pretty sure. Around. Am I right? There's, I think it's Google. Maybe it's Canopy. Forget I said anything. Peter, do you know? You're shaking your head. I have. Well, it, it, let's put it this way. We'll try to, if it's not, if they don't do Hoopla, we'll try to find, but I, we're going to go with books. At least the initial book would be one that is very likely on your shelves anyway. And that would be one of the Silver Palette book books because they were so influential in the 1980s. You know, you can't go wrong. I don't want to go with current books, which would be harder to organize. But if it's something that's on Hoopla, it's a go. So anyway, just continue polling, and uh, we'll catch that. In, oh, well, let me see. Shall we end? See, people are still, well, 19 responded. All right, here, I'll end it right now just to have some. Okay, well, it looks like, oh, my goodness, the fires is more interesting. <laughs> All right, well, this will help. Oh, share results. There you go. You get to see. So I've been reading about and learning how to use Zoom where it's a little more interactive, where you don't feel like everything's just one way. So polls and other things uh, is something I'm working on. Well, Mike, this was terrific. I'm so glad you came tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it might have taken a while, but we I think we hit you at the right moment. <laughs> Thanks. Yep. Well, good night, everybody. We'll see right. you another day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Kathy. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Scott.